So today's scripture uh, comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've actually already read these words. We, we said this prayer together. I want you to hear them again, and then we'll connect them um, to the film. Jesus said, when you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Ouch, that hurts me. Uh, (laughs) I have so many words. Don't be like them because God knows what you need before you ask. Instead, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth that is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. Do not lead us into temptation. Rescue us from the evil one. And this is where, um, where at least part of what I'll say will center. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will God forgive your sins. Okay, so we're in the series talking about theology and film, and we do this again because TV and film, they're stories, they're narratives, and that's the most powerful way in which we come to know who we are, our values, our identity. Uh, uh, The Christian faith presents us with a grand narrative about creation and the end and the redemption of all of creation and what God is up to and how we participate. And that helps us, right? Stories help us understand who we are, what relationships are about, what my life's supposed to be about. So how can Christians engage some of these powerful stories that are all around us? That's sort of what we're doing in the sermon series. And so today we're going to talk about talk, uh, um, women talking. And again, I can't I love it. It's, it's such a beautiful film. I really encourage you to watch it if you haven't. Uh, there's so many things that are brought up, and I'm going to just have to cut so much. I'm just going to focus, right, on something narrow, but, um, but it's really powerful. It's about the trauma of women, and up front, I will just apologize. I am so ill-equipped to handle this sermon. It should not be me doing this. Um, I'm not the right person to talk about uh, women who have been traumatized, who find themselves in a power structure that makes them voiceless. And like, I don't know what to say, except I'm sorry, you're stuck with me. And, and like, I recognize it, and I'll just, I'm going to try to be respectful and do the best I can. I, I, I'm not equipped. I won't do this well, right? I couldn't possibly fully understand enough to do this well. Um, so the story is a real one in that in 2010, there really was a very sort of conservative Mennonite community. And when you picture them, picture it's like, it's like Amish adjacent. They wear bonnets. They make their own clothes. They call themselves a colony. It's very insular, right? Very agricultural, very patriarchal. Um, and that's sort of the setting in 2010, actually, this really happened, right? Unfortunately, sadly, grotesquely, mostly the young men, some of the young men uh, of the colonies would sneak into women's rooms. They would anesthetize them um, with what they used to anesthetize cattle, and then they would sexually assault them. Uh, initially, this was blamed on demons, on Satan, uh, on their own sin, Uh, And at some point, it became so pervasive 
uh, and, and some of the men were caught, that enough was enough. So that's, that's true. That happened. Now, the rest of the film, all of the dialogue is fictional. The author of the book, it's a book, uh, the author calls it a work of feminine imagination. I love that. What, what might these women have discussed? How would they deal with it, right? Because it's enough. It, we're, we, no more, right? And so, essentially, a few of the representatives from the various families get together in a loft, like in the barn loft, and they're going to hash out, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to do? What are our options, even? What, what, what can we do? This is our whole lives. This is our community. This is our family. We, don't, we ride horse and buggy. We don't have telephones. Where can we go? Right? Like, what can we possibly do? And so what unfolds is, like, incredible courage and creativity and honesty and vulnerability and passion. It's just, I couldn't possibly do it justice, right? But the first decision to be made is... Do we forgive the men? Do we forgive them? Um, and what does that look like? Like, what are, what are the stakes? So we're going to watch the first clip um, is sort of the beginning stages where they're just sitting down to discuss their options. Uh, and you're going to hear, you're going to hear that Christian motivation. You're going to hear the passage from Matthew, right? And you'll see how that goes. Before we began, your grandmother Agatha told us we had to honor our service to each other. We had to represent it. Just as the disciples were washed by Jesus at the Last Supper, knowing that his hour had come. We only had 24 hours to imagine what world you would be born into. It is a part of our faith to forgive. We have always forgiven those who have wronged us. Why not now? Because now we know better. We will be excommunicated, forced to leave the colony in disgrace if we do not forgive these men. And if we are excommunicated, we forfeit our place in heaven. How could any of you live with the fear of that? These are legitimate fears. How can we address them? The only important thing to establish is if we forgive the men so that we will be allowed to enter the gates of heaven. You can laugh all you like, Salom, but we will be forced to leave the colony if we don't forgive the men. How will the Lord, when he arrives, find the women if we aren't in the colony? Jesus is able to return to life, live for thousands of years, and then drop down to earth from heaven to scoop up his supporters. Surely he'd also be able to locate a few women Let's who left their colony. Let's stay on track. All right, I'll stay on track. I cannot forgive them. I will never forgive them. I, I can't either. We want to enter the kingdom of heaven when we die. We have everything we want here. No. Want less. <laughs> Does entering the kingdom of heaven mean nothing to any of you? Surely there must be something worth living for in this life, not only the next.
so uh, for everyone in the room uh, where verses like forgive or you won't be forgiven, for everyone where those verses were weaponized against you to keep you in a bad relationship, to keep you stuck with people that hurt you, for the way in which that was used to maintain power structures that oppressed you, I am sorry. The church fails over and over in this way. What a perversion of forgiveness. We have to forgive these men or we won't go to heaven. And what that means is they're going to come back, we're going to say we forgive you, and we're going to stay. Like nothing changes. That can't be forgiveness. That can't be what it means. Like, I'm not sure what Jesus meant. I really, I, I don't, what did Jesus mean when he said, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I'm not sure. I can tell you what Jesus didn't mean. Jesus didn't mean uh, when someone hurts you, don't stand up, don't draw a boundary, just let it happen. Be a doormat. Stay in that relationship. I know Jesus didn't mean that. And yet, and yet, for many in the room, especially women, you have been told it is your job to make sure everyone is comfortable, that you are polite, that you smile, that you are not too much for anyone, that you endure, that you forgive. But that's, that's like a way to take scripture and to twist it and to pervert it and to, to maintain some sense that you are now controlled. The expectations placed on you with that kind of forgiveness. So fortunately, right, that's one voice of the, of the colony. That's one voice. But you heard other women, right, and, and it continues. I want to think for a minute about what forgiveness might be. And this is something where I'm, I can only make an argument. I'm not, I don't speak for God. Uh, I want you to consider it, and that's all, right? What do I know? I think forgiveness is much less about maintaining the status quo. Forgiveness is much less about just trying to keep the peace at all costs. I think that does great damage to you when you use forgiveness that way. Oh, I'll forgive you, but really you just don't want conflict. I don't think that's what it's about. At some place, I think like the ideal of forgiveness, like forgiveness that is not like taking the root out and taking every sliver out of that pain of that hurt is about emotional and spiritual healing. It's about coming to a place where you are at peace with what has happened. It is a place where bitterness and angerness have left at the appropriate time, not in some artificial forgive right now or you won't be forgiven kind of time, right? Forgiveness is a place that's not just a gift for the one who hurt you, but forgiveness is a gift to you because you don't let that person control you with anger and frustration and bitterness, right? It's a, it's a place where you feel it whole, like you can wish them well. You can wish for their redemption. That's when you know you've forgiven, right? I don't want to kill you. I don't need revenge over you. I pity you, and I want to see you re- redeemed. When you can get there, you're, you have forgiven. But how long does it take to get from here to there? The, the, the analogy I want to use is the process, the stages of grief. I think forgiveness is most similar to grief than any other like, stages I can think of. If someone loses someone they love and they are deeply sad, the worst thing you can do is say, stop being sad. Feel better. Because I can't. I just have to be sad. Now, do I want to be sad forever? Do I want to be this crushed forever? Of course not. But I'm going to have to be sad. 
And if the stages are correct, I'm going to get angry. And I'm going to bargain. And I'm going to... And eventually, I'm going to heal. Yes? Uh, and it's not a line, right? Like, grief's not like, here I am sad, and now over here, I am never sad about that again. It's, as Glennon Doyle says, a spiral staircase where you're going to hit that same pain again and again. Like some of you are hitting it right now on Father's Day. That same pain, that same anger, that same grief. But hopefully, you hit it at level two. You hit it at a higher, right? I'm healing, I'm getting better, but that pain's coming around and around and around. And it's going to be a cyclical endeavor to heal. Forgiveness is like that. If it's deep, if you've been hurt, telling someone to forgive right now, don't be angry, I can't. I am. Anger's appropriate. These women should be angry, furious. Absolutely. Is the future goal to continue to be angry and bitter? No, of course not. Because that means that they would be losing their own soul. They would let those men continue to control them if they stay angry forever and bitter forever. The actual act of empowerment is to forgive. It's to get to a place where I can become to peace. But that's, I'm going to hit that pain in a year, and a song hits on the radio, and a picture comes up on my phone, and that pain comes back around, and I have to do the work of forgiveness again, and hopefully, healing, I'll hit it at higher levels. So there's something about chronology that matters. Timing matters. For them to gather, and the first thing to be said is, you know if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. You know if we don't forgive the men, then we don't go to heaven. That's, that's not the time. I'm not even sure what that would mean. Like God is some divine bookkeeper in heaven like on some machine, like Joe forgave 75 people. Oh, but he, but he hurt 80 people. Negative five. Five, you, you came out, you overdrew your account. Really? Really? I'm only forgiven the... Like you talk about an economic model of the world dominating our theological view of forgiveness. Like there's some kind of exchange. That's what forgiveness is. I'll forgive you in exchange so I can go to heaven. Like you give me my token. No, it can't be that. Like, when can we replace that economic model of forgiveness with something that's, like, deeply relational and human and complicated and messy and not linear? It's, like, wonky and unpredictable. Okay, so in the end, the women have three options. They decide, right? We have three choices. One, we forgive and we stay and things go on as usual. Yes, that's an option. We just heard it presented. Two, this Salome who spoke up like, surely Jesus, you know, came from heaven for thousands of years, could find a few women outside the collar. Salome is mad. Salome's like, I, I, will, I will rip them limb from limb if they come near my children, I, and I will burn in hell with a smile on my face. Uh, they will never touch my kids, right? She is angry. And so she wants to fight. That's the second option, right? We're going to fight the men. Ultimately to lose, I would guess. If it's physical, or we leave. We leave the colony, we go somewhere else, we get safe. And so the bulk of the film is like, 
engaging in these options. The genius of the movie, I mean, there's lots of reasons. In one, at one level, it is a group of women who've actually been assaulted figuring out how to get out of an abusive situation. But at another level, it's, in my mind, about one woman and the many voices in her head. Each of the characters represents a voice in her head because I want to forgive and stay and keep the peace. What would happen if I left? Where would I go? I have no money. I have no place to go. I have no job for many women, right? At another level, at a third level, it's literally the very things that women encounter in our society even now and the power structures that exist even now. And the genius is if you, you could literally listen to the dialogue at all of those levels and it would make perfect sense. Do I forgive and keep the peace? Do I fight or do I leave? And what's interesting, and for all of you, I don't care whether you're a woman or not, forgiveness is a necessity, correct? You've been hurt, you've hurt others. And this is the same decision that we all face. So hear me out for just a minute. So imagine Kel and I and our relationship and we're with our friends and we're having lunch and I make an off-color joke at her expense. So she knows I love her, right? And I, ha I give her 15 compliments for every altercation and she has trust. Well, that's a time when forgiveness can look something like whatever. She can blow it off and say, that's just Joe. And it's, right? You, for, like that, we need to do that a lot with our coworkers, with our friends. We say, okay, it's, it's fine. I forgive you. It's, it's over. It's small. That's an option. That should be taken a lot. But imagine if this is a pattern in our relationship where I make her feel small, where I marginalize her in front of other people. Well, now, ignoring it's not an option. That's not what forgiveness looks like. Now she's got to fight, which means with us, we're going to talk. She's going to be like, you need to knock. Don't do that anymore, right? We're going to fight. We're going to, we're going to, she's going to demand I treat her differently. She's going to draw a boundary and say, you're going to respect it. And that is what that demands, right? I doubt it would demand her leaving, but it would demand that she fight. But in a different reality where I'm abusive, systematically, verbally, physically, staying and forgiving is not a good option. That's not what forgiveness looks like. And fighting has not worked. And so she has to leave. In fact, forgiveness demands that she leave because she can't forgive me while she's afraid. You can't forgive when, you're, when Maslow's hierarchy of needs are not met. So she has to get out of there. And only somewhere deep into the future when she's away from me, when she's safe, when she's made that courageous choice, can her heart soften and can she begin to work on forgiveness? And then I thought, and that's the same decision many of you have to make with your families. Because for some of you, your families are really toxic and really unhealthy for you, and it happens over and over and over. And you can no longer simply forgive and let it go. And maybe you've tried fighting, and that hasn't worked. And then it's time to draw a hard boundary with your family, and it's one of the hardest things to do, and say, you're not going to be in my life. And you, only you can decide this, right? It's the same. It's literally, you're the women in the barn deciding what, what, how, what's the level of this wrong? What's the level of this hurt that my family, this person in my family, this specific family member is perpetrating? Do, can I just let it go? Can we fight and work it out? 
and learn how to reconcile with each other? Or do I have to leave? I have to do it with my work right now at NNU. I'm at a place where I disagree with it theologically. I disagree with some of the positions it takes. I disagree with the way it makes some of our students feel and the way they feel about themselves. And I say, do I let this go? Do I stand up and do I speak out in meetings? Do I say, hey, NNU, we've got to be better? Or at some point, do I say, none of that's worked. This is a place I can't fully be myself. I need to leave, right? It's the same choices. We, like, they are us. We're in this situation where we have to decide what to do, what is warranted, because forgiveness is a mess, and it's not linear, and it looks different ways in different contexts. So this is maybe the most controversial part of the movie. Like, it's very hard, and I don't expect you all to agree. Um, The issue, though, of... How do we view our attackers? Like, how ought we to see the people that have done this to us? Um, Like, what does it look like to humanize them in some way? And so we're going to watch the second clip, and then I'll I'll talk. But this, this might be hard, right? And you might not agree. That's okay. Shall we move on? It is possible the men in prison are not guilty of the attacks, but are they guilty of not stopping the attacks? Are they guilty of knowing about the attacks and doing nothing? How should we know whether they're guilty of or not? But we do know. We do know that the conditions have been created by men and that these attacks have been made possible because of the circumstances of the colony. And those circumstances have been created and ordained by the men. But wait, aren't you suggesting that the attackers are as much victims as the victims of the attacks? that all of us, men and women, are victims of the circumstances from which the colony has been created. In a sense, yes. So then, even if the court finds them guilty or innocent, they are, after all, innocent. Yes, I would say so. The elders called them evil. That's not true. It's the elders' quest for power that is responsible. Because they needed to have those... Those they'd have power over. And those people are us. And they have taught the lesson of power to the boys and men of the colony, and the boys and men have been excellent students. Don't we all want some sort of power? I think so. But I'm not sure. I love that last line, by the way. I I, I, want to say that more in my life. I think so, but I'm not sure. Um, So here's the argument. Human behavior is really complicated, and it's not just a matter of, like, good people that make good decisions and wear white hats and bad people that make bad decisions and wear black hats. That's not how the world is. That the behavior of these young or, like, you know, older teenagers, early 20s, that their behavior is in part, not entirely, because it's a mess, it's messy, the system that's created in the colony where women are treated as objects. It's a system of power that shapes the way they see them. And it's been their whole life. So in some sense, the way in which they're misogynistic is the result of a system they didn't control, which makes them victims. And I think that's true. I wouldn't say innocent. That's not the word I would use. Here's Here's the word I would use. 
every person deserves empathy and compassion and a soft heart and a hope for redemption. Every person. Just maybe not right now. <laughs> like right now, I'm hurt. And right now, you terrify me. And right now, I'm angry. Right now, I have to get away from you. Right now, I'm not safe. Yes. But when I think, but, but later... But what would I hope? I would hope that at some point I could humanize the person that hurt me to see that they've been hurt. They've been traumatized. They're victims of a system that tell them that this is okay. They, they, right? I, I picture like the 12-year-old racist who when you see their family and their community, you say, oh my gosh, of course they're racist. Look at their family. But you know where that family came from? A community of racists, too, didn't come from nowhere, and it gets inherited and inherited. And is racism awful? Yes. And is it evil? Yes. And can I feel empathy? Can I feel pity and compassion for people raised in that context? Of course. And the more I can do that, the softer my heart gets. And at some place when you can get to safety, and at some place when you have distance, that to me looks like forgiveness. I humanize the people that have hurt me, I see how they've been hurt. I see that they are human and that they are flawed and they are broken. But of course, saying this in the context of a movie where women are being assaulted can look like I'm saying, hey, you're victims, but so are they. And I'm not saying that. The power dynamics make it so different and power matters. The men have power and the women do not. So one way of thinking about victimhood is totally different. I am not equating them. I don't think they're the same. And I think anger is warranted. Do you, can, have I said that clearly? But if you stay stuck in that place, you will lose your soul. You will be corroded. You will be horcruxed. Your soul will be split. Forgiveness is the way to bring all of the pieces of yourself back together. It's to say, you don't have power over me any more. That's what forgiveness, I think, looks like in this context, right? It's a gift to me to forgive. So the final clip, um, well, it's going to make sense all on its own, right? As they make the decision to leave, they realize this. To fight means bitterness and anger, and it means that we will not be the best versions of ourselves, and we can't stay and just forgive like nothing happened. It's too egregious. Our only option is to leave, right? So as they begin this discussion, um, this almost is like a benediction in and of itself. I've also been thinking about the verse from Philippians. And I've been thinking about what is good. Freedom is good. It's better than slavery. Forgiveness is good. It's better than revenge. And hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. What about security? And safety? And home and family? What about marriage? And love, Ona? I don't know about those things. Any of them, except for love, and even love is mysterious to me. And I believe that my home is with my mother and my sister and my unborn child, wherever that may be.
not hate that child. That child's the child of a man who inspires violent thoughts in you. I already love this child more than anything. He or she is as innocent and lovable as the evening sun. So too was the child's father when he was born. What if you're saying that forgiveness is better than revenge? Aren't you saying that we must stay here and forgive the men? We cannot forgive because we are forced to. With some distance, perhaps I'm able to understand how these crimes may have occurred. And with that distance, maybe I'm able to pity these men, perhaps forgive them, and even love them. Not fighting, but moving. Always moving, never fighting. Always moving. Never fighting, just moving. Never fighting, just moving. Never fighting, always moving. Oh, you snap out of it! You snap out of it. All of you snap out of it. Have you lost your minds? The sun is gone. I want to tell another story about Ruth and Cheryl. I was always frightened of the northern road out of the colony. There's so many gullies on either side of the road. The buggy used to lurch side to side. Ruth and Cheryl were simply following my commands of the reins, but they were jerky and frenetic, and it was dangerous. It was only when I learned to focus my gaze far down ahead of me and not on the road immediately in front of Ruth and Cheryl that I started to feel safe. Leaving will give us the more far-seeing perspective we need to forgive. Which is to love properly and keep the peace according to our faith. Therefore, our leaving wouldn't be an act of cowardice or abandonment. It wouldn't be because we were excommunicated or exiled. It would be a supreme act of faith, a step towards love and forgiveness. Leaving is how we demonstrate our faith. We are leaving because our faith is stronger than the rules. Bigger than our life. <clears throat> so for all of you, in a situation with a spouse, or a friend, or a job, or a family, or a church that is so consistently painful and hurtful that 
ensures that you don't feel safe and that the power structure is against you. May you have a faith bigger than the rules, a faith more important, right, than your fear. May you have the courage to leave, to get the distance needed so that you can heal eventually, that you can love eventually. And if any of you need help leaving, well, you've got a whole room full of people that'll do that for you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to realize the complexity of forgiveness and how in each situation it entails something different. We're grateful that you're a God of forgiveness and we pray that we might be able to forgive. Fill our hearts with love and courage. Amen.